We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and everybody listening. How are you going in Melbourne? Yes, so for anyone who cares, (laughs) I'm in Melbourne currently. We were planning on coming down here for Easter anyway, and then Nick had to or wanted to go away for a week. He's semi-working, semi-leisuring. He is away hunting, but he's creating recipes while he's away. And I thought if I am going to be by myself for a week with the three kids, I would rather do it in Melbourne with the support of my mum. And if we're coming down here anyway, I may as well just come down a week early He gets in tomorrow and holy majolly, (laughs) I cannot wait. My mum has been absolutely incredible, but obviously there's a limit to what we can ask of our parents and there is no limit to what I feel (laughs) I can ask of Nick and that has been made loud and clear for any time before that I made out that three kids wasn't a lot. When Nick's not here, three kids is a fucking lot of kids is all I'm saying. So I think I may have let him off the hook a bit too early this yeah. time. In hindsight, I think that, you know, when this comes out, Pearl will be nine weeks old. I think I let him go a little early, but that's okay. We live and we learn. And, yeah, she has decided since being in Melbourne that she doesn't sleep for longer than an hour and a half at a time, whether that be during the day, at night. So it's just, it's just been a lot and I am really excited for him to get in and I'm going to say to him, I'm just going to sleep in a different room tonight. Yep. You can sleep next Go to, to a Pearl hotel. and you can come. Well, no, he needs to come and get me when she needs to be fed. But I just can't, I just need one night of not doing the settling, not doing the listening out for her. She's just been sleeping really noisy. So, yeah, sleep deprivation yeah, my words aren't wording at the moment, so <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. But I'm just going to put something out there in the open. During the week, we got a review that was one star and it said that they used to like the podcast but they couldn't stand how privileged I am now or something like that and they said I will give her that she does acknowledge her privilege but, you know, In today's day and age, whinging about having to get passports done, like I just can't stand hearing her complain about things when she's so privileged. The problem with reviews is that you never can defend yourself. (laughs) 
And I would like to say that I feel like I acknowledge my privilege constantly. And I feel like if I did any more, it would just be plain annoying. When I complain about passports, I know that is a complete first world issue. I know it's not a real problem in the scheme of things. And I'm super lucky to be going traveling. But I also like to bring light content to the podcast that maybe some other people can relate to. And that is where we will leave it. And I'm just going to put it out in the open because otherwise I'm going to feel self-conscious about complaining about anything. Like someone could come back to my complaint I've just done now about her not sleeping and say, you're privileged that you even have a partner that helps. And so I'm just putting it out there in the open so that I feel like I can continue whinging and I know I'm privileged. I know my issues may not be issues to other people. And I will always admit that there are going to be people with bigger issues than what I've got, but it's up to you whether you want to listen to the podcast or not. It's completely free for you to listen to. So yeah, moving on. Um, Just before we move on, I'd just like to say if you want to do a review about a certain episode, then by all means go for it. But I feel like if you're a loyal listener and you're listening each week, when you give us a review, that's one thing. But when you hit the star rating, that also affects the entire review. So if you want to give review and feedback about something, by all means, go and tell Sophie she's privileged. Do whatever you want. But can you just make it like four star? Because I feel like if you... (laughs) been listening for a while like we've given you something over the past year or so you can at least like boost up the stars like surely my passport complaint didn't take us from a five star down to a one star (laughs) exactly unless it really really upset you then okay one star it is but you had something that you wanted to get off your chest this morning yeah look I'm probably just gonna bring it all down to reality now because I have spent the whole morning crying my eyes out god parenting will bring challenges like from having a newborn one minute to you know having a baby and it's sleepless nights then you've got toddlers and tantrums and then the next minute you're sitting at a school interview being told that your daughter is making others feel down and doing things you thought you have taught them not to do and um I'm not sharing this for sympathy, but it's more of a reminder how important it is to check in with your child's teacher and make sure you have the entire story of a situation so you can do everything you can to make sure you're molding your child into being the best person that they can possibly be. Like I get that kids will be kids, but kindness is absolutely everything. And I feel like I walked into the interview today like a deer in the headlights. I didn't know a lot of what was going on and I was, thank God Harry was with me because he spoke a lot and I sat there in pure shock. So we've had a massive discussion about what we can do on our end to, you know, try and I don't know, make our daughter understand things a little bit better. I get that when they get older, they try different things and they do and say certain things. But at the end of the day, our children really need to know that they have to be kind. You don't have to like someone. You don't have to play with someone. You don't have to, you know, you're not pushed into doing certain things. But if there is one thing that you need to do, it is to be kind to people. And um, 
yeah, that's my spiel. I'm surprised I haven't cried. I've probably got all my tears out, but that was what I wanted to say. On a happier note, I was actually going to come onto the podcast and talk about my great time away camping this weekend. We went with my family. You're we telling went, me you had a success. Had another success, babe. This year is full of successes so far. What do you far. mean another? Last time you didn't have a tent cover. <laughs> yeah, but the tent cover wasn't an issue, remember? We didn't. Oh, that's right. You got to gaze at the stars. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. It was beautiful. So this time we remembered the tent cover and we went and took my dad. My mum got out of it somehow and we had the most beautiful time away. The kids loved it. They fought nonstop. Like, gosh, you think they're going to do it at home. They may as well do it outdoors. But I was like, go out and play with children down the campsite or go and like roll around in the mud down there, go and do stuff. But no, they just wanted to fight in my ears near the fire. So anyway, hopefully we, we no, nah, we're never going to get past that either. But <laughs> it was nice to not be at home and the house be messed up. We just, we were in nature. How good. Now I've got a Rudolph fabulous for us. And I think this is really turning a shitty situation into a brilliant situation. So I love this one. And I'm just going to say it's fabulous from the get go. I've got a Rudolph fabulous for you. My baby is 16 months old and is going through that phase of throwing anything and everything in the bin. I have decided to take this opportunity to do a huge clear out of my kids' junk. Think items that come in party bags that end up hiding in their beds, bags, or the car, or items that come home from daycare. If they ask where that item is, I send them to look all over for it, which takes a good 10 minutes. When they can't find it, we blame it on the baby for throwing it out. For some reason, and they move on a lot quicker because they seem to understand that the baby had no idea what it was doing. Recently, my son found some drawings he did at school had landed in our bin and I quickly blamed it on the baby. <laughs> Rude or fabulous? <laughs> Absolutely. Fabulous. Fabulous, fabulous, Because you're fabulous. turning two annoying things into a win. The endless artwork, if we can call it that, <laughs> that comes home from daycare gets a bit annoying. The kid throwing shit in the bin gets a bit annoying. <laughs> Combine them turns into a good thing. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And the fridge is only so big to put so many artworks on. So, Absolutely. You know. Okay. And a mum hack that we have from Lucy. Uh, oh, sorry. It's a bit of a rude or fabulous or mum hack. We'll see. I'm homesick with a cold. My partner is due home from work at 4 p.m. It's currently 3.32 and I can smell a dirty nappy on our two-year-old. I can see where this is going. I'm going to wait until he gets home and use the old, oh, sorry, babe, my nose is blocked. I couldn't smell it. Bloody genius. That is fabulous. Because it's it's two minutes less than half an hour, so we'll let you have it. If it's over half an hour, I reckon you've got to change it. Less than half an hour, nah. Now, it's his. I wanted to ask you a question and anyone who's listening, Daylight Savings has recently ended and I want to know if it is a help or a hindrance on some people. For me, I think it is the best because in the morning, the kids wake up a bit earlier and they like I have more time to get them ready for school and then at mm. night it gets darker and they're going to bed early because they think that it's like late. 
Yeah. I think at the start when it swaps over, it can be brutal because your kids can go from waking up at like 6.30 to 5.30 or whatever. Mm. But I do think once they get used to it, it is so good it being that bit darker at night because my kids, they don't understand the concept of time. So if we're trying to get them into bed and it's still light outside, they're like, yeah, cool joke, not going (laughs) to happen. And, you know, even if you say, but it's quarter to eight, they're like, yeah, that means nothing to me. But if it's dark, they just kind of are like, oh, yeah, okay, well, we'll go to bed. Yeah. Now, this week's episode, I love this one. I thought it was so informative. It was with Ruth from Exhale Physiotherapy, all about postpartum pelvic floor issues and just kind of pelvic floor issues in general. I feel like I learned so, so much about everything down there in the pelvic floor. And we've got a bit of a physical exercise for everyone listening, so that's a little bit of a bonus we've thrown in there. Yeah, we've got a little bit of a challenge that we'd like you to all be a part of, so... Send in your videos or your pictures when you get to that point and we hope you enjoy. Enjoy. Hello, Ruth. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have Ruth here from Exhale Physiotherapy, maybe one of our personal physiotherapists, um, but we won't get into, you know, your, you know, your personal details. That's all confidential. But thank you so much for joining us today. Are you able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, thanks, first of all, for having me, guys. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, my name is Ruth. I'm a physio. I've been a physio for about 21 years now. The first kind of 10 years of my career was in exercise and sport. I, If you'd believe it, I worked in football and rugby league. Um, did you? I did, yes. Interesting. Yep. And then the, the second 10 years of my career has been mostly in pelvic floor, pre, postnatal, prolapse, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction. That's my main area of work and my main area of research is in persistent pelvic pain and things like endometriosis. Now, Ruth has actually been up inside me and had a really (laughs) good look twice, in fact, haven't you? You Uh lucky thing. Yep. I would never talk about a client on air, but Mm, here we yes. are. Yep. You brought it up. <laughs> now, would it be appropriate, I'm six weeks postpartum now, would it be appropriate for you to just give me an examination on air? Uh, that would be highly inappropriate. <laughs> I don't think my insurance would cover that at all. <laughs> bizarre, bizarre. Now, today we are going to focus on postpartum pelvic floor, what's normal, what to look out for, what are issues, what can be done about them, all the juicy but not so great stuff that comes with having bubs. My favorite question actually that came in was, is it called pelvic floor because it feels like your insides are on the floor postpartum? (laughs) I love that question too, because that's exactly what it feels like. It feels the day you walk around after your first delivery, you're like, oh my God, what is this? It feels like my uterus is going to fall onto the floor. And that's pretty, a pretty universal symptom that we want to see get better you know, within weeks and months after your delivery, but very, very common to feel like that. And before we launch into it, seriously, what is the pelvic floor? Mm, That's a good question. I think it's a good place for us to start. So the pelvic floor is a group of muscles and ligaments at the base of your pelvis. So if you think of your pelvis as a big kind of bony ring, the pelvic floor muscles are at the bottom. That's why it's called the floor. I mean, it's pretty unimaginative. But there's a few different layers of pelvic floor. We've got the entrance layer. So if you think of the entrance of your pelvic floor, it's what makes your vagina look and feel the way it looks and feels. So before you have a baby or a vaginal delivery, you can imagine that can look and feel quite different to six weeks postpartum. It's probably going to be a little bit more open. Those muscles 
there are lots of different ones, but they're quite circular, almost circular. And that circle can be a little bit bigger after you've had your baby. But then there's another set of muscles and that's kind of a little bit higher up in the pelvis, about three centimetres in from the entrance. And that layer is a really, it's almost like a big trampoline that lines the whole base of your pelvis. And the only gap in that layer is a little slice cut out of it where the tubes from the organs come down and out. So your bladder, your vagina and your rectum come down through the pelvic floor and out the entrance. So when we talk about pelvic floor, we talk about entrance muscles and then we talk about deep muscles. The deep muscles are called the levator um, and those muscles become really important when we think about how to get your baby out or things that might stop your baby coming out easily. So you could have issues with one of those levels and the other level be completely fine. Yeah, I would say that there's not many people at six weeks postpartum that feel completely fine in either of those layers, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people by three months will be feeling pretty good and lots of people by 12 months will be feeling great and there's some people that won't. So many people wrote this in. What if you are tight down there before giving birth, is that going to make you tear faster? Yeah, because I feel like we're always told that like down there, the tighter, the better without sounding crass, but that's not necessarily the case. No, that's not necessarily the case. And and like I said, a big part of my research is in people that may never have had a baby, that pelvic floor is too tight or high tone. So with pain conditions, quite often we get a pelvic floor that's too tight and then you can't have sex, you, you get constipation, it's hard to get your wee out. So there's this whole range of conditions that can come from a too tight pelvic floor. And I think most people who are about to have a baby, if you can't have sex very easily and you can't use tampons, you're already worried about how you're going to get a baby out. Mm, yeah. So I think talking about it is really important because it's in your head anyway. And the, the most recent literature would definitely suggest the ability to, the, the space you have, that little gap. Remember I said that deep layer has got the little gap for the tubes to come out? The smaller that gap is when you are at rest and when you squeeze your pelvic floor and when you try and push down, the smaller that gap is, the more likely you are to have a longer second stage. So your pushing stage can be longer. And then the longer your second stage is, there is more chance of worse outcomes like anal sphincter tears or something we call levator avulsion, which we can talk about in a minute. So the more current evidence seems to suggest that understanding what your pelvic floor is at at the moment and working on the flexibility prior to your delivery is really important. And so does anyone go from having a quote unquote normal pelvic floor to a too tight pelvic floor postpartum or is, you know, if they've had a vaginal delivery, is the head going to make sure that (laughs) that is not an issue? It's certainly pretty rare to have had a vaginal delivery and then get it too tight Um, in terms of that gap, but it can happen or you can get quite sensitive. So maybe it's not as tight, but to go from completely normal, never had a problem, then have my baby and get too tight, maybe not, but have a baby Mm. and get sore and sensitive and scar tissue and things, certainly. Yeah. And you touched on it before that everyone feels like their pelvic floor feels very foreign after we give birth. And I think that, I mean, Jade and I have discussed it before, like obviously people talk about prolapse after having babies or, you know, weeing when you sneeze. But it is something that I think both of us found quite jarring when we had our first child, that everything is so swollen. You feel like your labia is down to your knees and you think, oh, is this what everyone was talking about? This is just me forever now. So how can we know kind of 
what it's meant to feel like in terms of different postpartum to being concerned, oh, no, this is outside of what should be expected postpartum, or do we just watch and wait? I, I think watch and wait. Watch and wait. Watch and wait the labia and see how low they go. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, watch if they I, back up. <laughs> I think that the biggest change is going to be after your first vaginal delivery. And you guys mm. might, you both got three mm-hmm. and I've got three. I remember the jump from never having a baby before to mm. immediately after. I was like, what the hell is this? Mm-hmm. This is very different. And then from two to three, pretty similar because I was so used to that sensation. Yeah. So is the actual damage not as bad after two and three? Probably not. But the sensation is so foreign because you've gone from having firm, never had a issue pelvic floor to this different pelvic floor. So I think the only really way to know is it nearly everyone's going to feel different in those first six weeks. You can wait and see. So you could wait and see by, you know, six, 12, three month, you know, three month mark, how you're feeling. But we'd certainly want pelvic heaviness, my uterus feeling like it's on the floor to have gone by then and any kind of urinary incontinence to be gone by then. I am biased and I think everyone should just have a check, but that's not accessible Mm. for everyone. But if you come in Mm. at six weeks postpartum, that's the most common time we would do a postnatal pelvic floor check. A lot of women are really reassured. They're all walking, I was saying to Jade, they all walk in thinking, I'm going to say, you're in the worst, you're the bottom, you are the absolute worst. And a lot of times I'm like, you are so good. You're going to have a great recovery. And you leave feeling empowered, like, I know what I'm going to do. I know Mm. what to do for exercise. But certainly the first six weeks after your first delivery, it's not many people that think, oh, this is the same. Well, because this is a no filter podcast and I share everything, I actually saw Ruth recently because I just felt like things were a little bit different. And I'm almost for years postpartum, but it still gets to a point where on certain, you know, times of the month, I might sneeze and I'm weighing myself or I'm weighing myself a little bit too much when I'm doing things with the kids, like jumping. I don't really jump on the trampoline, but if I did, I would probably <laughs> weigh myself. When I imagine myself yeah, jumping when I, when on the I, trampoline. Myself, I'm pissing you know, myself. Being a really, really good mum jumping. <laughs> no. So basically I went in and saw Ruth and I was like, look, I just don't feel like like it's not 100% down there. And the main reason is when I have sex with my husband and that's what I said to her, I was like, I just feel he wouldn't be getting any satisfaction. And when she did the check, she actually said to me, which changed my whole mentality about sex, she said, you're actually fine. And in fact, the walls are quite, you know, what did you say? They were quite comfortable or they were quite um, cushiony. So in fact, he's probably got more in there than what he used to. But long story short, I came out of that appointment and I was like, when we had sex the next time and forever after that, I've actually now don't think, oh gosh, what if he doesn't like it? Or what if it's actually not good for him? I'm actually now like, oh no, he's so fine. I can now relax and enjoy it. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I remember the first time we had sex after Poppy and, you know, I hadn't felt fine for the six weeks, but by the time we had sex, like things were feeling relatively okay. And I remember just thinking, we are going to have sex and he will think, this entire thing is so different. And I remember him saying, and I don't know if he was just saying to make feel good, he was like literally did not feel any different. 
the most common response I have to that is they just feel lucky to be down there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like they're, not, they're not overthinking. <laughs> a male's biggest sexual organ is the penis. If it's ready to go, they're ready to go. And ours is our brain. Right. And if our brain's thinking, oh, what's it feel like for him? And oh, this, and it's not going to be enjoyable for us and maybe therefore less enjoyable for him anyway. So if we can work out ways to get our mind on track with intercourse, it's going to be better for us, for sure. And thinking about them is not going to help us. Mm. And it's so funny because that's what I would say to anyone else who even mentioned that issue to me. I would be like, think about everything you've gone through. Like, who cares what they think? But when it's yourself, you all of a sudden get into this stupid part of your brain where you care how it feels for them, where really you should be thinking think what that has gone through. They're yeah. lucky to be there. Absolutely. If you do have pelvic floor dysfunction, incontinence, prolapse after, it's well documented that you feel pretty shitty about yourself. You know, you don't feel sexy, certainly. Yeah. And it can really affect relationships by the way that you feel about yourself. You know, incidents of feeling a bit more depression afterwards, postpartum depression. It would make sense that if you don't feel good, then sex is not going to feel good for you or them. When I had my episiotomy, the thought after birth of what that looked like, let alone felt like, was massive. Like, for one, I gave birth and I just remember the entrance to my vagina was really swollen, like three times as swollen. And I looked in the mirror in the hospital and I was like, holy shit. Like, if that's it, I don't know how I'm going to even pee, let alone have sex again. And it was kind of like going home and being so worried that I didn't know what what it looked like down there that mentally I was just so tapped out. I had no confidence down there whatsoever. And I think that there's a lot of people out there postpartum that lose their confidence after giving birth because it, it really does change and look completely different. The first day, two, three days, there is so much swelling. It is full of blood. There's a lot of volume there. So it's fine to look at it. It's a lot of volume. She's got a lot of volume downstairs. Swelling. It's fine to look at it, but it is certainly not going to look like that in a week, in two weeks. And so what we do is then we get super busy with the baby and we don't look at it again. And then we think about having sex. But you know, if you looked at it at six weeks, you would see this massive change. Yeah. But I think everyone is nervous at six weeks, eight weeks. It's not uncommon for people to not be having sex for 12 weeks. So everyone is nervous and there's some people that probably should wait a bit longer. So if you've had a big a big tear and it's going into your bottom, mm. definitely we get those people to wait longer. But for most people it's about six weeks and it's pretty terrifying. And it's just about reassurance, isn't it? Yeah, for most people. But I think we need to shout that from the rooftops because I feel like there's so much pressure in so many aspects at the six-week mark. Like it's almost mm. like, oh, you get this tick off from the obstetrician, you might get a tick off from the pediatrician, you get a tick off from the physio or whatever, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, time to live life normally again. And there's, as we said, there's so much more, if we're talking about sex, that goes into sex than just, yes, your pelvic floor is fine to have sex again. I mean, you might still be dealing with birth trauma or even if it's not trauma, like even if your birth is not traumatic, every birth is a, a monumental, mm. you know, moment in time. And you might not, you, you know, your tits might be leaking. You might've just stopped bleeding or still be bleeding a little bit. 
your body doesn't feel like yours. Like there's so much more to feeling sexy and feeling connected. Like even right now, like I'm six weeks postpartum, but my husband and I are sleeping in different beds because, you know, we've got three kids now. There's no point of both of us being up all night and, you know, you're sleep deprived and you're probably feeling a bit disconnected and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm at six weeks and, you know, we barely had sex when I was pregnant. So it's probably time for me to do that again. But as women, like for most women, it takes much more than just, okay, let's go to feel like having sex, especially now that you're taking on this whole nother role of being a mother again for another child. hundred percent. I mean, again, if we just think about our brain as the biggest sexual organ, think about the schedule. Like think of where our brain's at. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm thinking like, about the schedule. The, it's over <laughs> the groceries, like what am I going to do tomorrow, this and that. So when they do research actually on pelvic floor dysfunction and sexual satisfaction for women after having a baby, it always comes out like it's hard to say it's just pelvic floor because there's so much other stuff going on. And, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but have you ever fought more with your partner than after you had kids? Like <laughs> they get never. more annoying. Like life is just, there's so much more to life and our brains are really occupied, super tired. So pelvic floor dysfunction is one consideration, but it's certainly not everything. But, you know, maintaining healthy and happy relationships is also important. So there's always going to be this kind of internal battle within ourselves of what we should be doing. But if you don't massively feel up for it, I would not suggest that you are an isolated case. No. What are some things in birth that can put you at greater risk of having pelvic floor issues? And this is not to scare people, but it's more to make them aware that maybe they should see a physio postpartum. Mm. There's lots of factors and actually it's pretty well researched. And the first thing I'd say about education about your risk factors is all the evidence about educating women about their risk factors and birth options seems to have a really positive effect on the woman after I think the worst thing that can happen is something happens to you and then afterwards you go, why the hell did no one tell me that Mm. this could have happened to me? Mm. If you know all the things that could happen and you choose your choice, you feel empowered regardless if it still happens to you. So I think education is super important. By bringing things into the frontal part of our brain, by understanding it, it takes fear away anyway. If we're talking about making women scared, we, we're not by giving them empowered choice. So that would be my first rant. <laughs> but the, the, the things that are pretty well evidenced are kind of quite logical. And the first one would be if you have a big baby. So little babies need less space to come out of than big babies. If your baby's more than four kilos, particularly in your first vaginal delivery, Mm. it's going to create more stretch and potentially more trauma. Certainly the use of forceps is a a risk factor for both. Uh, When we talk about pelvic floor trauma as physios, we talk about tears that might go down towards your bum. We call them OACI or or perineal tears, high-grade perineal tears. But also we can have this thing happen called levator. Remember I said that deep muscles called the levators? That's called levator avulsion, where actually as your muscles stretching for baby to come out, part of it can pull away from the bone. And that doesn't usually, some can recover, but most of the time that doesn't recover so well. And therefore your risk of prolapse in your lifetime goes up. So when physios think about pelvic floor outcomes, we're thinking about tears and probably um, levator avulsion as the two main things. So that's not something you can see from the outside and you may not know directly after birth that's happened. Correct. Most people wouldn't know unless they get assessed. And even at six weeks, we're not amazing at picking it up. But if we see it at, you know, six months, 12 months, certainly your physio can have a good idea or we could do an ultrasound. But I do want to put a little disclaimer in there is that physios only have to care about your pelvic floor. Like that's our thing. 
obstetricians and midwives, they have to care about your life, baby. Like they've got a lot of things they have to look after. <laughs> yeah. we, we're really focused on one thing. So it's easy for us to say don't do forceps, but forceps might have to be done. You yeah, know? Yeah, so yeah. forceps increases the trauma, big babies. There is some racial characteristics. So uh, Southeast Asian people in Australia seem to have more higher rates of tears. And then definitely prolonged second stage. So the longer you push for, we're not quite sure of the cutoff yet. Some studies say an hour and a half, some say two hours. The longer you push for, the more chance you have of those two injuries. And so therefore, probably the tight pelvic floor is a, is a risk factor because yeah. you're going to push for longer mm. because it's time. And so I feel like the word episiotomy is thrown around a lot, but I think a lot of women, even some that have had them, don't quite understand why it's done or what it's done. A lot of people think that you cut from, you know, towards the bum when really the point is to keep it away from the bum. So can you tell us a bit about that and, yeah, why it's done and then how we can recover from one? Yeah. And that's a really good point is the whole idea of the episiotomy because the person doing it is making a decision in the heat of the moment and that's not necessarily easy to do. But they are trying to make an incision. It's usually always across to the right um, and they have these special little scissors, which sounds terrifying, I know, but they have these special little scissors that give you the angle to make sure that that cut is not going to extend down towards your bum. Yeah, so it's diagonal. Diagonal, yeah. So across yeah. to the across to the right side, about 60 degrees, I think, is the measurement. You're, hang on, you're, hang on, let me check, girls. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're yeah. she's right. You're Get your right. protractor out, Jane. Yeah. Come on, let's see. <laughs> oh, no, it's 62 degrees. No, no. It's slightly to the right. You are correct. So... We don't do them just to do them or, you know, obstetricians don't do them just to do them. And if you could choose, which quite often we can't choose, if you could choose, no, I'll just have a small grade two tear things <laughs> rather than episiotomy, you'd probably choose the small grade two because, yes, the healing time is probably going to be better. And so, Jade, what does your, like where the episiotomy was done, what does that feel like now? So that was for your first birth, yeah. is that so, right? So that was nine years ago? Yeah. So first birth and I can pinch the skin and it's actually numb. I can't feel it at all. It's completely numb and it's a darker color than my skin around that area. It is quite big. Like I can, it's quite noticeable, but the only people seeing it are my husband and myself. Well, not really me either. <laughs> I yeah, barely I see it these days, <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, it, it doesn't hurt and it really healed very, very well. I, you know, the first few days, as I said before, I was really overwhelmed. I was like, what? What is this? And then by the a few months in, I was like, what episiotomy? I have no idea. It's completely yeah. fine. And what would you recommend, Ruth, if someone has had an episiotomy to help with the healing of that? Uh, I just think expect to be a little bit slower in those first couple of weeks. But by six weeks, a lot of people are feeling really good about their episiotomy. And I think scar tissue treatment, really essentially just like perineal massage you did in your pregnancy, is really helpful for you to kind of reconnect to the area. You don't want the first thing going past your episiotomy to be a penis or, you know, <laughs> your partner. I think yeah. touching the area, getting your brain and your body reconnected, but also, you know, if you had a scar on your arm, you'd probably massage it. If you have a Caesar scar, you'd massage it. So I definitely get people at six weeks postpartum massaging their episiotomy scar just to make sure it feels like it's not getting too gritty or hard, oh. that kind of thing. So I would encourage people once they feel okay about it, 
to get it moving and touching it. That's so true because I feel like if the first thing going past it isn't you, you're probably holding your breath thinking, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what is this? It's like it's like when you're holding your breath before you do that first wee or before oh, you do yeah. that first poo and it's like it's not helpful in anything going in or out if you're like – you know, tense and holding your breath and, you know, we have to exhale. Totally. So I guess if you've become reacquainted with that area and you know that it feels all right, then you're probably going to be more relaxed when someone else wants to get in the area. And and if you anticipate pain, like if you're thinking, oh, my God, what is this going to feel like? It's more likely that you're going to get pain mm. that if, yeah. than if you're more relaxed. And if you're anticipating pain, you're probably going to tighten the muscles as the penis is, or finger or whatever is going through and therefore create more friction and more sensitivity. So if you can learn to mm. relax, reduce the sensitivity of the scar, I think that's a really good good outcome for you. Is your pelvic floor completely intact post-C-section? Uh, yes. You know, people will debate on social media that vaginal uh, Caesar is not protective of pelvic floor function. But I, you know, if you read all the, you can't have a tear to your bum if you have a Caesar and you can't have levator avulsion. Those two things don't happen. And they're the biggest things that probably lead to long-term outcomes. They're not the only things. And I think if people want to debate that Caesar and and vaginal delivery is the same for pelvic floor. They sort of quote this paper that at 60, all the rates of incontinence are the same. And therefore they say pelvic floor outcomes are the same for women if they have vaginal or Caesar. However, there's a fair bit of life to live between having your children and 60 years of age. (laughs) Correct. So if I'm incontinent 28, there's a lot of years that I'm incontinent for before I hit 60 when the people who have urgency and estrogen-related bladder problems catch up. Mm, so right. there is no easy way to get a baby out, I would like to add. Caesars come with yeah. their own risks and their own downsides and your dad is probably a great person to have on and say, well, look, Ruth talked about the risks of vaginal delivery because all she cares about is the pelvic floor. <laughs> but what are the risks of Caesar? And then if we give women or birthing people all the options then they can decide with my life and my circumstances what's best for me. If I'm a 45-kilo marathon runner married to a Tongan person, maybe having a giant baby and I want to run at the Olympics next year, maybe vaginal birth is not the best option for me versus someone else. I mean, the best outcome is probably... A really simple vaginal delivery where everything goes perfect, but you can't you can't always pick that. When I was pregnant, I went and saw a women's health physio um, because I felt as though I had a prolapse. It felt like the pressure of the pregnancy. I mean, I had hyperemesis, so I was vomiting a lot. I was putting a lot of pressure on my pelvic floor. And I went and saw her because I was like, oh my God, if this is what it's like when I'm pregnant, what is it going to be like postpartum? So if I like does that pressure of just the pregnancy itself, like if I had have gone on to have a cesarean, would that pressure have had an effect on my pelvic mm. floor or is it kind of like once that weight is taken away and lifted, things would be somewhat normal again? After a Caesar. Yeah. yeah. So the, the pregnancy will still, so pelvic floor is muscles and I've really talked about muscles, but it's also ligaments. And there's some ligaments that kind of attach your uterus up, uterosacral ligaments, and just the weight of carrying a baby can affect those ligaments. So certainly pregnancy is a risk factor for having prolapse, although it is much less common to see women who have prolapse that have had seizures. You can see them, but it's less common and usually they've got other risk factors like chronic constipation, you know, being more overweight, those kinds of things. What we see is that uh, a lot of women can look prolapsy in pregnancy. 
And we shouldn't mm. call it prolapse because that's terrifying. But you look a bit <laughs> prolapsy. Everything's a bit heavy. <laughs> Sounds kind of cute. Yeah, it's cute. Yeah. Um, but then, Not. you know, lots of those people, because in pregnancy, all the hormonal changes mean our collagen changes so that we can get our baby out. So effectively, your body's trying to make your pelvic floor worse so the baby can come out easy. It doesn't yeah. know if you're going to have a Caesar. Mm. But then afterwards, there are some people that have a vaginal delivery and are just going to bring everything back up some people that are going to be slower and some people that don't recover fully. If you have a Caesar, there's other downsides to that, probably for you, for the baby and, and the rest, but you might look prolapsy in pregnancy, but by six weeks, three months after, those those hormonal changes probably mean that that's gone away. I'm Switzerland on how you have a baby. I don't mind either way. Yeah, 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 yeah. If we're talking purely from a pelvic floor. Yeah. While we're speaking about being prolapsy while we're pregnant, yeah. and this is not a flex, but you know, I was expecting my pelvic floor to feel quite bad after having this baby because it felt so weak during pregnancy. And it actually feels quite good, like almost better than after I had my second child. Is there something at the start for some people that tightens things up and then it's going to like fall apart in six months or a year's time? Or is it generally like if it feels good now, it's probably going to stay good until I'm 60? That depends. But yes, if, if yeah. you've had a really good, out, you know, within the first six weeks, you're feeling pretty good, then probably you'll continue to feel pretty good. If there's other risk factors for pelvic floor, not just pregnancy and vaginal delivery, yeah. but certainly the the second biggest thing that happens in, in your pelvic floor's life is going to be when you get closer to menopause or around menopause. Mm -hmm. And one of those has to do with the, the difference in hormones and the changes in estrogen. But the other thing is probably the longer you're an upright creature under the forces of gravity, things can go south a bit more. So my boobs yeah. can go south, men's testicles can go south, and your pelvic organs can start to go south yeah. just by being upright for longer. Gravity. Okay. Gravity. So I need to have more naps. Yeah. Feed <laughs> up more, yeah. Or, you know, make sure you've got your pelvic floor in good condition. Once we hit 40, every muscle in your body starts to decline unless you work it. So, you know, thinking about strength and conditioning of the pelvic floor will probably prevent some of those things or definitely prevent. Should everyone see a pelvic floor physio postpartum? I would say yes. I think <laughs> I think yes. I mean, how do you know, particularly with levator avulsion, how do you know unless someone who knows what they're doing is going to check? And like I said, your midwife and or obstetrician or who GP, whoever you see after, they've got to check you. They've got to check your baby. They've got to check your mental health. They might spend two minutes on your pelvic floor and you've you've been in an appointment. There's a fair bit of time where oh, we're yeah. talking, we're assessing, we assess you in standing because sometimes you don't look heavy lying, but mm -hmm. then you stand up. So I think everyone should, but not everyone can. I get it. You know, there's baby factors. Sometimes yours is psycho and you just can't get out of the house, but there's financial factors. There is, is there a pelvic physio near me factors? But I think we were talking before, I absolutely believe that it should be covered as part of your maternity care under Medicare that everyone gets to see a pelvic physio afterwards. Mm, absolutely. In regional areas, for example, in our area in Byron Bay, we don't have an outpatient pelvic physio clinic so that you can't get checked at six weeks postnatal. Hopefully that will change. Mm. So I think we need to have publicly funded sessions for people so that at least we can pick up the high risk women because there's some people that aren't high risk and we don't have to worry about but the people that are high risk we should be looking after 
Um, so if you want to, you know, get behind our rally to get Medicare funded sessions, I would be very happy about it. Mm. And if people are trying to get their ducks in a row postpartum thinking, you know, where are they going to spend their money? Like I know it's going to change because they're private practices and clinics, but how much approximately would it cost to go and see a physio postpartum? Because I feel like you kind of rock up and then you build at the end yeah. and it's like the hairdresser. you don't really know what you're yeah, in for. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I think the hairdresser's more. Oh, they're way more, way yeah. more, I would say. Yeah. So it would differ, again, across different areas. I worked in Sydney for most of my career and it's usually, I mean, the average would probably be about for an hour session would be about $200. Now, should everyone be doing their Kegels? And it wasn't until I went and saw this lady when I was pregnant that I realized just how terribly I was doing them. So how do we know if we're doing them correctly? And also there is so many different Kegel exercises. Mm. Ruth has shown me things that are going up the back and at the front. I'm doing so many gymnastic tricks I've never, (laughs) ever done before. Postpartum, I would say... In the early window, it depends. If you've had a a big tear, an OAC kind of tear, we actually want you to let that heal first and we don't get you working super hard on your pelvic floor Mm -hmm. early. And the evidence for pelvic floor physio sessions straight after, it it would seem that time is the most important thing. So if you can't get to physio and you're not sure, then then time is probably an even more important factor than pelvic floor exercises. But in, except for OAC, I don't think that they can hurt. And certainly after that early postpartum window, you, we've got good proof that they work really well. And it makes sense. You've gone through this big stretch and now you want to firm up those muscles again so your vagina looks and feels the same, but also so you're putting money in the bank for future mm. so that you don't get ongoing problems later. So what kind of things does it actually help with though? The evidence, um, especially you know after that postpartum window, the evidence for pelvic floor muscle training to prevent urinary incontinence is really, really strong and good. And in fact, our NICE guidelines now, the clinical excellence guidelines say that no one should have surgery for urinary incontinence until they've had three months of supervised pelvic floor muscle training because 50% of people will get 100% better and 75% of people will nearly completely cure their problems of incontinence, stress urinary incontinence with exercise alone. Now, I'm one of those people that, you know, get told to do their kegels and then you forget to do your kegels and then someone reminds you about kegels and you're like fuck should be doing my kegels while we've like me sitting here right now doing (laughs) i was gonna say while we've got you now and everyone's listening to this episode can you just take us through a step like a short one where we can all just do a bit of a kegel exercise yeah, I, and I just want to, little disclaimer is it just depends. If you can't even turn the muscles on, this is not going to be effective. If you can hold for 20 seconds, you know, you've got to do that. But in general, when we think about Kegels, um, you want to think about pelvic floor full range of motion, which means when I tighten it, I tighten it all the way up and lift it. I'll talk about that in a sec. But then just as important, you've got to bring it back down and let it go Because if Mm. you just tighten, then the next time you try and tighten, you're not going to be tightening. You're already Mm. tight. So Mm -hmm. think all the way on, all the way off when you do the exercises is important, particularly for the tight people. And prenatally, some women, we actually, all we're focusing on is off, how to get better at off. So this, we're talking now about postnatally, you feel a bit weak, you want to get a bit stronger. I get people to think about entrance muscles. So circular muscles make your vagina smaller or bigger at the entrance. And the cue would be, Entrance, make it smaller. Mm-hmm. Entrance, make it smaller. And they're fast. Twitch. Jade's concentration. 
can all our listeners can all our listeners send us a picture of yes. where they are doing their kegels yes. and what their concentration face is because Jade's is like someone has just died. <laughs> We uh, want to see it. You're probably walking the pram or you're in the car. Gosh, you probably, yeah. who knows? So so entrance make it small. Those muscles are a bit more fast twitch. So they can't work for long, long periods. So it might be, for example, I might think entrance, make it smaller, two seconds, one, two, let it go fully. And I might do 10 of those. So it's 10, quite irritating though it's, like to hold on to that. It, it's really hard. Yeah, it is. And the other point I would say is that you are universally not alone, that all the research says everyone falls off the wagon with their exercise, even though we know they're great for you. It prevents all these sorts of things. It, they're boring mm. and lots of people don't do them. But definitely do yours. Everyone do yours. <laughs> <laughs> so the second, the second lot of exercise I get people to think about the deeper layer. And so think about that big trampoline-like structure that goes around your anus and around your vagina and around your bladder. So the cue for that would be hold in a fart, tighten around the vagina and hold in a wee and lift it up towards your head. Oh, so it's a much bigger lifting feeling, whereas it's just, entrance is entrance make it smaller. This is like tighten and lift. That one you should be able to hold for longer. So that might be more of a like an eight second, 10 second hold. And then you might do 10 of those. I feel like that's really bringing a lot and holding a lot up there. Yes. That one. Yes. Right. It is. It is. Everything. I'm going to do that with my husband so he can hold in a fart once in his life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Harry needs to seriously learn some Kegel methods for sure. Well, I couldn't. It would give me a stomachache. I'm like, yeah, well, how come I can hold them in yeah. and you can't? <laughs> but think about it like strength training. If I went to the gym, I wouldn't like, do two at the traffic lights and I wouldn't like I would go and I would and I would think about a five minute little session where I work these muscles till they're completely tired and then the next day I'll do the same so you need to early postpartum we just definitely break it up because you're not very strong but once you get stronger don't dick around like get in there and make it count rather than bits and pieces is the first bit of advice but the second thing is you don't know what you should be doing unless someone tells you oh your deep's fine you need to do heaps of entrance or your deep you know you've got to work you've got to think about this cue more so being assessed I think is really important some people are quite tight and they will get sent to me from a well-meaning GP and they'll say oh they've got a really weak pelvic floor no they've got a tight pelvic floor and when it's tight it doesn't move anywhere because it's already perfect. Oh. And so you want to know what the baseline, so imagine that deep muscle, maybe like a piece of meat, right? Some people have scotch fillet meat, doesn't move very far because it's so thick and strong. It's perfect. They can jump on the trampoline. It's when after birth it's a bit more minute stake and sitting a bit lower, well, then I might feel this great squeeze because I've started from down here. But when I let go again, I'm still back down there. Yeah, I'm and a bit of a minute state yeah, kind of girl I'm a minute at the moment. Too. Mm. And then when I jump I don't on know the trampoline, I'll find out soon. Come over. God, how much our life changes that now all I want is to go to an appointment and to be told <laughs> that my pelvic floor is a scotch. <laughs> <laughs> The old me's looking at the future me like, wow, you've changed. Life really took a turn there. Well, that's the thing. Before you're pregnant. You don't even think about, like, it's not even something that enters you your head. Granted, you take really. it for granted. It just does its thing because it's scotch fillet. Mm. And once it becomes minute, then you've got to think, oh, God, I've got to lift that up when I sneeze. Mm. So the goal behind your exercise is to improve the tone from minute to scotch fillet, and that's why you have to work it hard, and that's why you've got to do so many repetitions for I so I am never going to look at steak the same <laughs> again. <laughs> 
<laughs> now let's talk a bit about prolapses because mm-hmm. the word's thrown around, but what does it actually mean? What is prolapsing and what are we looking for? So prolapse is a really, it's a terrifying word because if you hear it or someone says it to you, you think, oh my God, that is the thing that older women get. How come this has happened to me? But in fact, it's quite common um, and prolapse essentially means the things, the, the organs that used to sit up high in my pelvis now sit lower to the point where I can feel it or I can touch it. So there might be a bulge or I can feel this heaviness and dragging within my pelvis. And the feeling, it's its not usually painful. It's usually annoying. It sucks, the symptom. Now you can get vaginal prolapse and you can also get anal prolapse, yes. correct? Yes, yeah. The most common, so when we think about prolapse, usually we're talking about vaginal prolapse and that could be the pro, like your bladder dropping down lower towards the entrance of your vagina than it used to. So it's dropping through the vaginal wall towards your entrance or the bowel dropping forward. So the old terms would have been cystocele or rectocele. So my bowels dropping into my vagina or my bladder, or you can get the uterus kind of dropping down a bit. If you have rectal prolapse, that's different. It's where th- something is coming through your bum. What? So it's kind of rectal skin and rectal right. contents involuting through your bum. It's much less common and you would see a colorectal. The most common presentation is I feel something heavy in my vagina. What is it? Is it the bladder? Is it the bowel or is it the uterus? And I, I like to say to people, it has to be symptomatic. So if someone looked at you and said, oh, that bladder's a bit more flexible than it used to be, you've got prolapse, that's not prolapse. Now we've really got this understanding that it's not just anatomy changing, it's that I feel symptomatic and I have symptoms that bother me around this. Sorry, what would you be having done that someone looks like? Pap smear. You might have a pap smear and someone oh, okay. go, so oh, like, that, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Like they can see that it's protruding, but you're not feeling it. I'm like, okay, what activity are we doing that someone is seeing that? Maybe if your husband's a gynecologist or maybe. Um, He's not. But just like my boobs at 18 sat higher, at 43 they sit lower. The organs do change over time and there's a level of that that's normal particularly after having a baby, but if those if it becomes symptomatic or you're touching the entrance of your vagina and you can feel it, then we're going to call it prolapse. So that's what prolapse is. Essentially, things that used to sit higher are now sitting lower. And there is also a normal stage of prolapse. I mean, can you talk about when we were having the conversation because I felt like I was having a prolapse and it ended up being a normal feeling. It was more like a wall has flopped out. Yeah, that, and that that essentially is prolapse. But for a lot of people, it will change throughout the cycle and it can change oh, massively yeah. throughout the day. So you might go, I've got no symptoms all morning. And when I do the lighthouse walk with the baby in the carrier, then I feel heavy. Then, you know, that's kind of, uh, this really common that you get these symptoms that go up and down compared to someone who says every day I wake up and my bladder is outside of my vaginal wall, then that's obviously a damage that's not recovering. But for a lot of us, it's kind of changing throughout the day. And the idea is we can change it so it always stays that way. So when I ovulate or I'm getting my period and I'm having a shower, I can feel so many things in there and I can feel the back wall. I can feel if I'm constipated. I can also feel my, what is that little hole? Cervix. I can feel the cervix. Mm. I can, and it's so, I'm trying to get my head around it because I don't know what it all should and shouldn't feel like. And that's why I came to you because I was like, all right, is everything coming out 
or, and then you explained, no, during your cycle, things do come up, they come down. So does it change for everyone through the cycle or is it pretty consistent that like if someone does feel a change in the cycle, it's like worst when, when they're menstruating? Like does everything get out of the way when you're ovulating because it, it wants you to have sex? Like mm. It can depend, um, but yeah. m- for most people, the cervix is getting low or things are going to feel heavier right before their period and during their period, yeah. right when you need to use a tampon, everything feels low and you're trying to get it up, <laughs> right? Seriously. Um, but for some people, the changes of hormones around ovulation make them really constipated or make their gut upset and then they might feel heavier because of the constipation. So it does vary, but a, a pretty classic presentation is that right before my period or when I'm trying to put a tampon or a cup in, it feels quite low because the cervix is moving around due to hormones at that time. And Ruth gave a brilliant suggestion of going if you can't get the, you know how sometimes you put a tampon in and it just sort of goes to the right or left a little bit and you're like, oh, fuck, I can't even get that in. She said you can actually put your, if you can, put your feet up against a wall. I mean, obviously, if you're in a public toilet, it's going to get a little bit (laughs) orcs. But if you're at home in the bed, put your feet up on the wall and it will be so much easier to get in. Definitely. And and I think if you're having those symptoms, if you're wrestling with a tampon every time you drop <laughs> your period, you should be getting checked by someone. And ideally you'd, you could try and time it. If you go, I feel perfect all the time, except right before my period. And then you go see someone at ovulation and they go, you're perfect. Then you go, yeah. well, this is annoying mm. because I don't feel perfect. If you can try and time it, which is very difficult with when you feel symptomatic or do that big walk the day before so that you feel a bit symptomatic so we can see you when you're feeling your worst, then we can really tell you what's happening because it can change a fair bit. Why can't our whole body just feel like it does when we're ovulating all the time? So I've heard conflicting information about menstrual cups and what the suction can do to your cervix. If we're having that heaviness, should we avoid that? I think we don't have research papers yet that say definitely don't use a menstrual cup. Certainly we have case reports, though, of people creating prolapse because they're not unsucking the cup properly. So unsucking the cup properly is so critically important. I would say I personally, not evidence-based yet, I don't let, I don't not let. I say to people, my advice is in the first 12 months postpartum, when we're thinking like things would recover, potentially don't use them. Most of the time you don't have your period for a lot of that anyway. But the the correct technique is quite helpful. But I have a lot of clients that uterus feel so low, they put it in and around their period it's not helpful because it feels like it's coming out a bit. So then mm. the, the cup, there's one called Nixit that's American. There's an Australian one too that's more of a bowl shape rather than the pointy mm. shape. They can be better if you really like cups and you want to wear them. You have to think about the shape if you're getting that heaviness around your cycle. And if you have a mild prolapse and it's not enough to have surgery but you're feeling incontinent when you're exercising and you're feeling quite uncomfortable, are there any tools that we can use to feel more confident day to day? Yeah, definitely. There is, uh, and and just a point that you can have bad prolapse, zero incontinence. You can have bad incontinence, zero prolapse. They can occur together. So you can get all sorts of presentations. Mm. So the first thing would be pelvic floor muscle training. We've talked about that is important for everyone to improve the, the tone of the muscle. But there are things, you know, sometimes someone might come in and their pelvic floor is actually really good. And the problem for them is the ligaments that supported their bladder 
have become stretched after baby or damage and therefore yeah. their bladder just feels like it's flopping around. So they and get so on the no tram. no matter how many exercises you do, you can't strengthen Correct. That. Or you can get it better yeah. to a point but not all the way. And mm. instead of leaping straight to a surgery, then that's where we would probably use a pessary. I use pessaries quite early for a lot of women. But pessaries are kind of silicon-shaped. I call them a bit like a bit of scaffolding that you would put inside the vagina to hold everything back up to the position it used to be in. They're not for everyone. When we look at the the research around it, about 65% of people really like them, 35% of people don't. There's some things that make them more successful in women than others. But in general, it feels if you're feeling heavy and crappy, it feels really amazing to have it all lifted back up so that heaviness is gone. And so some people may only need to wear it like when exercising or at the end of the day or and then some other people may find relief all day long. Correct. So they used to be used, they've been around for ages, but they used to always be used in the gynae clinics in, in older women that had bad prolapse and the gynae would put them in and leave it in for six to 12 months. Then the gynae would take it out, clean it, and then put it back in again. And so it was something they wore constantly. Wow. They didn't manage it, stays in all the time. But now, you know, for the last eight, 10 years at least in Australia, we've been using them much more proactively, a lot of times in younger women, because now we have women saying, this is crap. I don't want to feel like this. And what yeah. can I do to create, improve the symptoms? So yeah, some people only need to use it when they're exercising because they only leak when they exercise or they just want to feel that confidence. I know I'm not making myself worse by exercising. Mm. Other people wear it every day, take it out every night so that they're giving their skin Can you a break. have sex with one? Some you can. I don't know why you would. As yeah, a younger right. person, I don't know why you would. They're quite usually quite easy to manage. So you'd usually whip it out. I mean, it's not the sexiest thing in the world. Like, excuse me, I just got to whip my pessary out. But there's certainly some that you can't. So the other day, Ruth was getting a notepad out of her drawer and there were all these different objects. And I was like, oh, what's all in here? I got really excited. Mm. And they, these pessaries are in all shapes and sizes. Like they're incredible. Can you tell, like, just explain yeah. a few different ones that you have? Yeah. So the most common one you'll see is the ring and it looks like a, it looks like a bracelet. It's quite terrifying, but you squeeze them together and then you put them in. So I say to people gesturing a lot, and that's probably not helping anyone, but vaginas are quite narrow at the entrance, hopefully, and then bigger inside, right? That makes sense. So we squeeze them together to get through the entrance, and then they're going to open up inside. Um, so the ring is really common, and the idea behind it is you slot it in kind of behind the cervix, and then it holds the front wall and the back wall up and the cervix up. Mm -hmm. Really common, quite easy to manage. Uh, the downside to it is if you have had that muscle damage, the levator avulsion, they they quite often move around and they don't work so well. So the ring is really common. Then the neck, the one you were describing is called a cube and it literally looks like a dice and it is quite strong. It suctions, so kind of like a cup, it suctions to the cervix and you suction it up and push it all the way up. But because it suctions, you need to take it out every day. Some gynecologists will let you leave it a little, a little bit longer, but physios, we need to get people to take it out every day. So therefore, you need to be good at taking it in and out, just like the cup. There is one called a gelhorn. It's my personal favorite. Kind of looks like a little mushroom and it you can still use it when you don't have, uh, when you have a levator avulsion. Um, it's not quite as suctiony and it can stay in for longer. There's rings with knob. There's a dish with knob. There's uh, little ones that look like donuts. There's different shaped hexagon type ones. So there's quite a oh few. This world, isn't it incredible? 
some weird stuff in my drawers. I know, but how good? And I guess just like I think that, as you said, because it is something that has often been known for older women, I think women of our age really keep it to themselves when they need them so they feel like no one else is using them. But, I mean, even from our questions that got sent in alone, there are so many women Mm. who are using these and feeling incredible relief from these devices. Definitely. And, you know, there's a bit to it and you want to make sure you see someone who's appropriately trained and how to fit it and the rest. But it's, again, if I go back to my boobs, it's kind of like when I was 18, I didn't need a good sports bra on the trampoline. I could do whatever. And now I need like the best Mm. to hold everything up. And, and that's the same with the pessary. You can, if it feels really confronting, you can think of it like that. Well, things are a bit more flexible. I'm going to use something to hold it up while I exercise. And then I might take it out after. We don't have great evidence yet about how well they work in women straight after having babies because all the research that gets done is in sort of the postmenopausal women. But there are case reports of if I use it after having a baby, potentially I can wean off it because I tighten things up by using the pessary. So there's this theory Uh that actually it could be improving the healing rate, but we don't know the answer to that yet. Certainly using a pessary has doesn't make anyone worse from all the long-term studies and it can quite often make the muscles underneath. So if you think your organs might be sitting on your muscles and therefore your muscles find it really hard to work very well because it feels really heavy. If you take the organs off the muscles and then work the muscles really hard, potentially you've got a better chance of your muscles recovering a little bit as well. And why is surgery controversial for prolapse? We had lots of people write in saying, you know, I've been offered surgery, but I just don't know if I should go ahead with it or not. What's your thoughts on that? Certainly surgery is indicated in some people and it's life-changing and it's, and it's great. So I don't want to be negative about surgery. But yeah. in any surgery, usually the pathway is try all the conservative measures first and if they aren't going so well, then surgery would be the last option. And all the good surgeons will say that. You need to try some physio. You need to have a pessary uh, first and see if you like it. Particularly for prolapse, the controversy comes around the use of mesh in pelvic organ prolapse surgery. So essentially when they do prolapse surgeries, what they try to do is tighten up tissue that's been stretched. And Mm -hmm. one of the consequences is they'd sew up tissue that's already been quite stretched And then it stretches again and the outcomes Mm. weren't amazing. So people would get a a reasonably high recurrence rate. So what they tried to do was use an artificial kind of tissue, so the mesh, to make that repair Mm. be stronger rather than just stretch again. And that mesh is really helpful for some people, but for some people, a small amount of people, it created some really, really big problems. And and a Senate inquiry came out about, well, how did people use the mesh? Did they use it the right way? Were people informed of the risks? So now a Senate inquiry in, I think it's 2018, has said that everyone should try conservative measures before any mesh is used. They've banned a lot of the mesh that they used to use. So there's only certain types of mesh and certain types of surgeons that can use them. A lot of people would have read about the class actions around mesh and it's pretty confronting. Not everyone that has mesh will have a problem. Some surgeries will require mesh. So I know one day I'll probably have a pelvic floor repair and I will need mesh, but I will be really informed of all the pros and cons. And that's sort yeah. of where this controversy comes out. So surgery can be helpful, certainly not the first step. 
And if, you know, there's some things that make you more likely that your surgery is not going to be as successful as others. And one of those things is that muscle having pulled away from the bone or torn. So I think if you're going to have surgery, having the strongest pelvic floor that you can possibly have is got to have better outcomes. Let's move on to bladder leakage. I think it's something that as mums, we just think, oh, it's just something that now we've got to deal with. What are realistic expectations? Like we've joked about trampolines. Is it a realistic expectation that I will get to the stage that I can comfortably jump on a trampoline, confidently sneeze? The answer to that is we should, and we really hope that everyone can. I can tell you though that the trampoline is the hardest thing to get back to and some of us, be included, are not going to get back to the trampoline and I have done everything. So if people get on and say, well, if you can't jump on the trampoline, you definitely got to do more exercise. It doesn't always happen that way because sometimes the ligaments are the problem and the bladder feels like it Mm -hmm. is just flopping around. So I I would hope so. That would be my goal and dream for everyone. But is it 100% sure? No. Sneezing, I definitely think that's got a much better chance of getting rid of that altogether. And a lot of people are going to leak in those first six weeks. And I would say, don't be too concerned about it because your body's just been through heaps. The nerves that innovate the bladder sometimes get, quite often get a bit of a stretch. And half the time, I don't know if you've had that feeling of you go do a wee and go, oh my God, there was a lot in there. And I didn't even realize because mm. you just don't have that sense of how full it is. And therefore, you've got this full bladder, you sneak, like you're just a bit unco. Yeah. And over time, those feelings and sensations come back. That is so true. Like, especially as a mum, you hold on to your wee all day almost. Like, you just, there's so much to do, You but you're holding your baby, you can't get to the toilet, so you hold on, hold on. And then when you sit down, you go, oh, my God, I think I needed to wee for like five hours and I've only just sat or down. Or you try and think back to your last wee and you're like, yesterday. that was a <laughs> three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. And you're so right. I haven't been busting all day. And I think it's in such stark contrast to when you're pregnant because when you're yeah. pregnant you're having to go every 15 minutes and you go and it's so dissatisfying because it's like dribbles. And you're like, it felt full. What do you mean that's all I had in there? It's such a difference. And that's not going to be the experience for everyone, though. Of course, there's going to be people that have really significant bladder problems, a small amount of people after they have their baby, and, you know, they can't hold it in at all. That There's going to be just this whole spectrum, but it's not uncommon to actually just not have great sensation. And after that first six weeks, things, you know, eight weeks, things are starting to get dramatically better. So would you be concerned if someone was weeing when they sneezed, weeing when they were sick and vomiting and it was this, it was every time that they did those things, would you say that would need to be fixed? I think that is definitely worth an assessment. It is very hard if you're in your third pregnancy and you are vomiting violently to not wee. It oh, would, yeah, it's every single because time. you can't. If if I'm trying to say let's coordinate your pelvic floor when you vomit, you're going to laugh in my face. It is violent, and you are bearing down a lot of the time. So trying to manage it in positions of how you vomit can help. So I'm a bit, I'm a little bit less concerned about that because it's pretty hard to stop that. 
But after your baby, if it's ongoing that you're always leaking with every sneeze, certainly there's lots of things you can do to get that better and you should be you know, coming to see someone to get that assessed. I think with the pregnancy thing, especially when I was pregnant with Yumi and she was my third, I opted to actually sit on the toilet and wee and then vomit into a, a bucket because I would wee way more and have no control over that and I'd have more control over the vomit. Yeah, exactly. I was doing that too, but is that bad because you're putting a lot of weight then down yeah. on your pelvic floor as you're sitting on the toilet? There, there's definitely no research to say yes, but, yeah, yeah, you're in a more open, exposed position. So potentially yeah. what might be a better position is kneeling on the floor and kind of leaning, getting closer to all fours so your vagina isn't straight down or your mm, bladder isn't yeah. straight down. So trying to put it on a more of a horizontal lean could help. That's pretty hard though. If you're racing yeah. and you're trying to vomit, like your pelvic floor might not be first on the We'll on the leave list. that for our um, pre-pregnancy episode. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. What you're saying is if you're out in public and you ca- and you do not have a spare outfit and you cannot afford <laughs> to piss your pants, yes. it is fine to sit the butt on the toilet and vomit into a bin. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think that's fair. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you for giving us permission <laughs> for that beautiful act. So with stress incontinence what can we do is that the kegels and are there any surgeries you can get or any other things cubes we can pop anywhere (laughs) so definitely pelvic floor muscle training everyone who comes into physio will leave with that but some of the pessaries can be really good for incontinence so the ring the one i described the ring can be really helpful because it kind of butts right up against the urethra and the bladder and probably holds it the stillest so the ring the ring with knob and the dish, those are the ones we usually use in incontinence. Um, so if I had stress urinary incontinence, the first thing I'd do is start with exercises, maybe add in a pessary, and hopefully as my muscles get stronger, then I don't need the pessary as much. And then for some people, yeah, there is certainly surgeries. Uh, they, they can be quite different, but they quite often look like a little tape, which is mesh, but not so much the mesh that created as much of the problem. And it kind of slots in behind the bladder. So it's like a little sling that sits in behind the bladder that can hold it more still. It's, it's the idea is it's replacing some of the ligaments that might have got damaged. And a little tip that I've used, I got a little Kegel note and I put it in my car. So when I'm driving, I've just got a reminder there to actually do my Kegels. And that, I mean, you could do it in the bathroom. You could put a little note somewhere that you're there for, you know, five minutes And that does help when your kids don't rip it down. (laughs) (laughs) The way I do it is when I'm reading uh, my kids a book at night. So, because you know, you have to lie down, you're there for half an hour reading. You're bored anyway. So, (laughs) So that's that's when I do it. But also, you can, if you're going to, if you've got yourself to the point with your isolated at home at night doing my Kegels, and then I go to the gym, there's ways that you can incorporate it with other exercises Mm. to feel like, okay, I've done it because I've been to the gym and I did my pelvic floor exercises while I did my weights or Pilates or whatever. Mm. But just knowing that, you know, if, if I assess you in the clinic and you can't do it in standing, there's no point doing it in standing. Do you know what I mean? Like some people just cannot work their pelvic floor in sitting or standing. So they have to start lying. Mm. And then as you get stronger, ideally we can make you more functional. So, yeah, it's good to get assessed because you might be working away, sitting in the car doing it and not actually doing it. And what's urge incontinence? Is that a postpartum issue or is that unrelated? Yeah, definitely can be uh, 
postpartum. It can be before you've ever had a baby. So people can have urge urinary incontinence. So the most common thing around childbirth is stress urinary incontinence. My muscles are weaker. I sneeze. They're not strong enough to hold things in, the, the wee in. Urgency is more about uh, the bladder factors generally. So if you want to stay continent, you need the pressure you've got of the muscles and the, and the urethra to be more than the pressure that's inside the bladder. So that makes sense. At any point, if you let your bladder fill up enough, no matter who you are, if it becomes more full than your muscles can tolerate, you're going to leak. That's just normal. Yeah. But some people can have factors inside their bladder, like maybe their bladder squeezing at the wrong time. So a classic might be, I put my key in the door as I come home yeah. and I got my bladder starts squeezing mm. like I'm on the toilet. That's more like urgency or I didn't feel like I needed to go and all of a sudden I needed to go massively and I ran to the toilet and there wasn't much there. That's more about urgency rather than I, I jumped and I, and I leaked. Urgency increases a lot around menopause because estrogen has a lot of factors to influence the bladder. So that's why we see a spike. So you can have stress urinary incontinence more common around childbirth and the childbirthing year. And then at menopause, it's probably more likely to have urge urinary incontinence and mixed is you've got both. And is part of that, like if you see a toilet block in the distance, suddenly need to go more than when you couldn't see it? So is it a bit or when you so turn it's a shower bit psychological on. as well? It, it is because the brain and the bladder, I mean, the brain and everything is connected. But yeah. we've all had that example like, oh, my God, I really need to go. And then you got distracted <laughs> and then you've, you didn't go for half an yeah. hour. And then other times you've got the key in the door. You just went before you left wherever you were. And the keys in the door are like, oh, my God, because the brain's like, yep, definitely, we're going to start squeezing now. And oh, wow. people can have triggers around it, so you just need to retrain the triggers. And so the, the treatments for both can be quite different. Yes, probably the muscles will be involved in both treatments, but urgency treatments is much more about, you know, the brain and the bladder connection and how you can suppress that overwhelming desire to then more calmly run to the toilet or walk to the toilet rather than <laughs> running to the toilet block and you're already full and you've got two kids under your arms. And you're- you can just see that. It's, it's that such a specific almost fast-paced waddle yeah. that people get on as they're like trying to kind of cross their legs but get there quickly. But uh, My tip would be if if you know you're not blood, your blood is not massively full, just try and wait out. If it squeezes at the wrong time, it's about 60 seconds worth of intense squeeze and then it will die off. So if you could probably just sit down, sit on your heel, take some deep breaths, get calm, wait for the intensity, put a towel down. Put a towel, wait for the intensity to die off and then walk to the toilet. You might have more success than bolting yeah. or waddling. So what are your top tips on getting back into exercise postpartum and what should we avoid? The we've got more and more evidence now supporting earlier return to exercise. For a lot of women, it used to be like just really rest and recover and and now like with most conditions, getting up and getting moving early seems to be important unless you're in that higher risk category. But my top tips are if, if we think about abdominal separation, we haven't covered that a lot today, but we certainly can in another episode, is that we used to wait ages, maybe six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Probably the evidence now says at three weeks postpartum in an uncomplicated, probably vaginal delivery, getting moving with your abdominal wall early is important and helpful. So the first three weeks you might wear compression or let it rest, but then after that we start to exercise the abdominal wall. And then the same with the pelvic floor. We, I think the, the gold standard would be to come in at six weeks postpartum 
your physio to assess the tone that you have and the ligament support that you have, and then base your exercise prescription around that. But as a general principle, if you're feeling pretty good, early get out, get moving with the pram. It's great for your body, but it's great for your mental health. This getting out of the house is important. At six weeks, if your physio or doctors tell you that things are going okay, you go into lower intensity exercise, which could still be walking, swimming, maybe Pilates, yoga, and we might modify some of the positions based on your pelvic floor and your abdominal wall, and then progressively increase the load so that our guidelines about returning to running aren't perfect yet because we don't have the evidence. But usually we say about four months for more the jumping and running would be the Mm -hmm. minimum. But some people probably need to wait a little bit longer than that because their recovery is slower. But of course, there's some people that are going to just be like, you know, the people that walk into the gym and just look amazing. There's probably people that at six, eight, 10 weeks probably are okay to run. But if we have to put general guidelines around, we probably wait a little bit longer for the jumping, jolting, just to give you more time to recover. Also factoring in, you're not sleeping well. So if you were a long distance runner and having 11 hours of recovery sleep before, you're not getting that now. Mm. So thinking about other factors, not just the pelvic floor, but we don't also don't want to hold people back just with their pelvic floor because their mental health is super important. And if exercise is important to you, we need to get you back doing something and work out a plan to aim to get you back to what you want to do as soon as possible. And do those places you can go where it's not a vibrator, but the vibrating machines work on you, like they're like 5,000 sit-ups in one minute yeah, and yes. I think there's another one uh, for your pelvic, pelvic floor. floor. Do they do they work? The, one of the brands would be the Mcella chair. I think that's what you're talking yeah. about. They are yeah, yeah. around and they are in some physio clinics now. I think that we probably need a little bit more evidence to say for sure, evidence that's not funded by those companies, um, <laughs> to say for sure that it works in a large cohort of people. But I'm certainly not saying it doesn't work. It's just that they can be expensive and so that's prohibitive for a lot of people. So I still would say we don't know if exercises alone or those chairs are going to give you a better outcome, but it's probably it's probably safe to try one if you if you have the option for that. But I don't know the exact answer to that yet. And some tips for enjoying sex again postpartum. What if it's painful? If it's painful, definitely do not put up with painful sex because your brain is now starting to link sex and pain rather than sex and pleasure. And our biggest sexual organs, our brain, if we start thinking when our partner walks past and touches our thigh, oh, my God, this is going to (laughs) suck, then it's going to suck. So first of all, if there's pain, it's not uncommon, but certainly seek treatment for it. And physio can do so much for sexual pain in the postpartum period. Reasons could be scar tissue, so, you know, the episiotomy or your tear. Reasons could be the lack of estrogen. And I usually find this particularly, you know, three and six, sex maybe not that bad initially, but then three, six and 12 months, it feels really sensitive and almost like burning um, because we're lacking estrogen in the vagina Mm. because our periods are usually suppressed. Good quality lubricant is super important. Potentially vaginal estrogen creams for some women can be really helpful. But the first tip is definitely don't put up with it because we don't want to start linking that together. And what if there it feels like there's been a loss of sensation? That's also not uncommon and one thing no one ever tells you before you have a vaginal delivery that sex might not feel the same. But it, it is a it is a 
it's a really common symptom actually and I think it's worth talking about to women in the prenatal period because the nerve that innervates the entrance and the clitoris quite often in 80% of women they say gets stretched when you have vaginal delivery. Wow, 80%. Yeah, and for some people that 80% isn't too big a deal, their sensation's okay, but for other people, you know, it takes longer Maybe my brain's also distracted. So there's there's multiple factors of why it might not feel the same. And you need to work with your body and someone to work out, even though it might look a bit different, how can it still feel really good for you? And there's some great books out there. Come As You Are is a really good book by Emily Nagoski. Really good things that you can look into. But physio-wise, getting the muscles working makes the nerve work. Therefore, we might get better sensation. The clitoris is, you guys know what the clitoris looks like. We see this tiny bowl, but it's actually this giant organ that goes around the entrance. If entrance is stretched and wide, clitoris is not going to get as much sensation as stretch. Mm. So getting the entrance smaller, doing entrance exercises is important for how you feel in sex. We can use little, not an abtronic, but we can use little electrodes with, which put a kind of a little electrical sensation to try and increase the sensitivity around the pelvis. There's lots of things that you can be doing. So I would also say don't put up with that, but it's easy to put up with. I felt like it wasn't just dryness, but it was more until I stopped breastfeeding and still I got, until I got my cycle back, it was like my urge to have sex or my willingness to initiate or look forward to sex. It it really didn't return until my cycle was back and I wasn't breastfeeding. Is that just because your body's like, well, it's very unlikely you're going to get pregnant now. So what's the point of having sex? Like, is that just an evolutionary type Mm, thing? Biologic. Yeah. I think it would make sense that, because I was kind of like, why do they make it like this? Like we have to go through the delivery and then sex afterwards, you don't feel like it. It doesn't feel as good. Yeah. But probably biology is trying to protect you from not getting pregnant too quickly so (laughs) therefore you don't get your period back maybe you don't ovulate not everyone be careful please yes but also maybe that you're not really feeling it because you know ovulation seems to be women are feeling it a bit more around ovulation if you're not feeling it there you're not ovulating therefore you might not be feeling it but again that's so multifactorial because you're yeah. tired, you're not sleeping, your kids are annoying. Like there's mm. there's a million yeah. things that could feed into that. But certainly the kids were still annoying even when I got my period back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that never changed. <laughs> no. Just to finish off, and you touched on it briefly, and as you said, I think that we'll get you back to chat mm. about uh, pregnancy and pelvic floor, because I think we could talk to you forever. Mm-hmm. But abdominal separation is it is it something that we should be really worried about? I feel like some people like know how many centimeters they are afterwards. I don't feel like anyone's ever told me a centimeter separation. What's the deal? I think me personally as a physio, I am so much less worried about that than the pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. However, it can make you feel not so good about yourself. If you've got a wide separation, which is not that common, but in some women they can have a wide gap and therefore they don't feel good about how they look. It's not linked with prolapse. It's not linked with incontinence, but it is linked with, you know, self-esteem and and self-image, which is very important. Nearly everyone is going to get abdominal separation in their pregnancy. So if we look at the literature 80 to 100%. So for me, that's everyone. The muscles and the collagen, the ligaments in between the muscles in your tummy are designed to stretch so that you have more space. And they're probably the same kind of the hormonal changes in the pelvic floor. We want it to stretch. 
then afterwards in those first six to 12 weeks, those collagen fibers can change back. And for a lot of people, their separation isn't a big deal. Yes, it might be slightly wider or slightly deeper than before, but they feel pretty good about how they look and it's nothing to be too concerned about. So if you've got a little gap, I'm not too concerned. If the gap is bigger though, and you 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 definitely should seek out help of how to improve that gap and bring it back together or, or tighten the ligament and thicken the ligament. And is that what those high-waisted like recovery shorts is that what that helps with yeah so I used to always say about those oh we don't really know if they're that helpful or not but it it would seem to be now in the first couple of weeks they could be helpful in that period where your collagen fibers maybe are changing back holding that ligament so you say the ligament between your tummy muscles gets wider holding it in a closer position might let that heal a little bit tighter But I always describe separation as a balance between the ligament that runs down the middle and the muscles beside the ligament. So if you imagine your abdominal wall is like two big English sausages attached together with sausage skin, right? And we're really in a butcher today. (laughs) There's muscles, right? So as the sausage skin that holds them together separates in your pregnancy, Mm. the sausages also get really thin and weak. And we know this, like your tummy feels weaker after Mm. you've been pregnant. And it's just as important in my books to thicken up the sausages and do exercise for the muscles as it is considering about, oh, what should I do about this gap? Thickening up the muscles is probably the most important part, I think. Well, I'm hungry now and I'm going to go have a barbecue. (laughs) But thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. As we said, I honestly think I could listen to you talk about this forever because it's so clear and simple. But in depth. So so thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. -bye.